0: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Good afternoon and welcome along. This is a live Clubland Q&A at Stein Online. It is just after 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, 7 a.m. on the Howland and Baker Islands, but it is 7 a.m. Saturday on Wake Island. You don't want to get those mixed up if you had any Saturday morning appointments. 9 a.m. in Maui, 1 p.m. in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, but of course 4.30 in Newfoundland, 8 p.m in Belfast, 10 p.m. in Kampala, and for you early risers in the Pacific, it is 4 a.m. in Tokyo and 5 a.m. in Sydney. I am, if you have not been able to tell, not Mark Stein. This is Andrew Lawton, Stein Online's charmingly appointed Deputy Senior Assistant Vice President of Canadian Affairs, and it is my absolute pleasure to be filling in for Mark. We are trying to make sure that this show is as far out of the ambit of Ofcom as as is possible. If you were watching Mark's program last week, you'll no doubt be aware to the rejoicing of the Guardian that he's being investigated by Ofcom. So we figured that uh, he had to take a little bit of time off today just to not add another complaint. So I am not in the British Isles in any way whatsoever, unless you count Her Majesty's overseas dominion of Canada. But I don't think Ofcom extends to London, Ontario, where I am. (laughs) This is a little bit different because last time... I did the Clubland Q&A from Tirana, Albania, and I had just been like told to hole up and not go to the conference I was going to go to because there was a threat of a terror attack there. And there was no terror attack. And I did go to the place I was told not to the next day. And I was living dangerously. And now I'm living even more dangerously because I am taking live questions without having any idea what they are going to be. So Uh, Mark will be back soon enough, and he certainly you'll be able to hear him on Serenade Radio on Sunday and also back on the Mark Stein show in video form on Monday on GB News. But it is my delight to keep you some company until then. Uh, You know the rules by now. Anyone can listen to the Clubland Q&A, but if you want to ask a question, you have to be a Mark Stein club member. And I see uh, there, oh my goodness, there are a few questions already, but you can get yours in. And if you disagree with anything I've said in an answer to an earlier question you can chime in and share your disagreement in the comments and we absolutely are delighted with uh, some of the questions that have already been put there cuz you always want to you don't you don't want to start off with the comment equivalent of dead air So I don't seem to be doing that now. Uh, And by the way, fear not, you don't need to limit it to Canadian content. I know last time we had a fair bit of Canadian content. We might this time. I don't actually know. Uh, The first question, though, is not Canadian. This comes from Mary, who says, Hi, Andrew. As a pro-life Catholic, I thought the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade uh, was the answer to prayer. But with the Kansas vote, I fear we are lost as a nation and there is no turning back. What do you think? So this is, of course, referring to the Kansas abortion referendum that uh, was basically about changing the state constitution. And the question was whether basically a yes vote would affirm there's no constitutional right to abortion and a no vote would do the opposite. A no vote would. uh, And this is where there was a fair bit of confusion on the ballot because you always get this in referenda where there's so much text accompanying it they muddy what should be a very clear yes or no question but if you voted for the amendment it would say there's no constitutional right to abortion if you voted against the amendment it would keep the status quo and the state of kansas could restrict the people through their state legislators from regulating abortion and I saw a fair bit after the results, which were fairly decisive here. I mean, if you look at the actual numbers, the actual numbers, it was a 59-41 victory in a state that is fairly Republican. It's uh, Republican dominating in the, the voter rolls and in elections. And it was 59-41 to 41 in favor of basically protecting abortion rights in Kansas. And... A lot of conservatives, a lot of pro-life conservatives were very annoyed by this. And they were saying, oh, the question was confusing and people didn't understand the question. And sure, you might have a little bit of that, but that goes in both directions. And no one would be saying the question was ambiguous and confusing if they won. That's the only thing you do that, the only time you do that is when you've lost a referendum. You say, oh, well, no one knew what they were voting on. Here's the thing. People knew what they were voting on. People knew the stakes. People knew the question. The question can be distilled down to a very simple one. Do you want abortion to be restricted here or not? And in some ways, I blame the right for this. And when I say the right, I'm talking about the pro-life movement because very few people on the left care about this in the sense of care about life in protecting it. But the challenge on this is that so many of the defenders of the Dobbs decision— which was the one that overturned Roe v. Wade. The defenders of that said, well, uh, you know, we're not actually doing anything to abortion. We're, we're just making it a state's rights issue. We're just le- letting the states decide. No, 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 we're, we're not doing anything. We're not, we're not banning it. We're not jailing your uh, daughter, or your neighbor. We're, no, 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 we're not, we're not touching women's rights. We're, we're just sending it back to the states. And a lot of people then felt like the battle was over. And the left immediately started pivoting to these state battles. The left immediately started pivoting to these referenda, to direct democracy where states allow it, to lobbying legislators in other states. And this is going to continue. So if you're going to say, well, we've just sent it back to the states, you have to be prepared to then carry on the battle at the state level, which a lot of pro-life people were not prepared to do evidently. But I I think there's a more fundamental problem here. And this goes back to Mark's old line about how you shouldn't just go around waving your constitution in people's faces and expecting that to be a trump card and i think we tend to lionize the idea of having our side dominating on the supreme court and this is to our detriment because here's what happened republicans say oh we got to get the court majority okay we got to get the court majority trump gets his supreme court justices we've got them and we can overturn roe v wade great congratulations you've overturned roe v wade but what has that actually done? If a Republican state, ostensibly a pro-life state, that's what everyone would have thought up until last week, a pro-life state, a Republican state, a conservative state, then goes along with this. And part of it is engagement. The overturning of Roe v. Wade hugely mobilized the left it hugely mobilized them. If you look at voter turnout, I actually was reading about this earlier and I'll see if I can uh, just, you know, idly pull that article up while I'm talking here. So it doesn't sound like I'm, I know. See, now you can tell I'm looking for it because I'm, I'm killing time, but voter turnout was absolutely insane. Here it is. The referendum had 908,000 voters. This is the largest, the largest turnout in a Kansas primary ever. And just by contrast, 908,700 voters. In 2020, the primary had a little over 600,000. In 2018, the primary had like 450, 430,000. In 2016, very pivotal election, less than 400,000 people voted in the Kansas primary. So we're talking about a number here that is more than double the number of people that voted in the 2016 primary and the 2018 primary voting in this primary. So people were engaged. And the ones that showed up to vote clearly were the ones that wanted to vote for abortion rights. They're the ones that showed up. They're the ones who mobilized. And I don't even know if you can say, well, the pro-choice side ran a better campaign because I think it's more complicated than that. I think that One side, and that's the right, has focused so much on appointing Supreme Court justices, they have completely abandoned the more important fight, which is the cultural fight. And I've had this discussion with pro-life activists in, in Canada and the U.S., which is that if your goal is zero abortions, That can be achieved through a number of ways. It can be achieved through education. It can be achieved through legislation. It can be achieved through uh, one-on-one conversations. It can be achieved through providing alternatives. But but if your goal is zero abortions, getting there however you get there should matter less than not getting there. And focusing on the judicial channel, which, sir, is, is one piece of this, but focusing exclusively on the judicial channel and not winning over hearts and minds and culture, not actually having this battle where it matters, which is at the individual level, clearly doesn't work. And and this is going to happen in more and more states. It might not happen in Texas, but it's going to happen elsewhere. Take from this what you will, because it's the New York Times, but the New York Times has done with Nate Cohn, who's their, their numbers guy, they've done a bit of extrapolation here, and they said that four out of five states would do something similar if they were to have a similar vote. So the Kansas results suggest four out of five states would back abortion rights in a similar vote. And they're basing this on the numbers, the numbers in Kansas, the numbers in the referendum. And they think that it means about 65% of voters nationwide would reject a a similar incentive to restrict abortion at the state level. And again, I mean, I'm I'm not uh, under the fantasy that everyone agrees on this issue, even in the audience right now. But I'm saying that if you are pro-life and this matters to you, you can't expect that you're just going to win this over by appointing a couple of pro-life Supreme Court justices. If it was going to be overturned again by court stacking, it could also be overturned by state legislatures and as we're seeing in the context here. And it's the right's inability or unwillingness to engage in these issues at a cultural level that has always been to the right's detriment. It's the same as how the left just moves at breakneck speed from one social cause to the other. It went from gay marriage to transgender washrooms so much so that when something like this happens and immediately people on the right say, oh, no, 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 it's just a state's rights issue. The left within seconds is plotting for referenda and Clearly succeeding in the first opportunity, the first opportunity. Now, maybe this is going to be a bit of a lesson that everyone else will learn from, and the next one will be different. But at a certain point, I think this is something that people need to realize. And it doesn't mean that the battle is over. It just means that the left is a lot better at this than the right. And I think that's going to be the big lesson here is that you can't just stack this. I, I don't mean stacking in the sense of, you know, Joe Biden packing the court with, you know, 57 justices or whatever, but you can't just stack the court with people that view the world your way and expect that that's going to trump all the people that don't. And, and that's the reality of this here. Chris writes, hi, Andrew, I've got a big picture question for you. I recently read a study that claimed about three quarters of people do not have an inner voice. Where they, This is fun, where they discuss things with themselves and they do not have an internal ability to visualize things. These people were claimed to be like video game non-playable characters, NPCs who slavishly follow some predetermined script. I believe Milgram called, this is me now, not Chris, but the agentic state where people just act as, as agents of, of someone else. He says, now I found the study to be dubious, but it did remind me that when it comes to big social and political issues, such as COVID restrictions and climate change, I've met a lot of NPCs in my time. Logic, data, and careful reasoning cannot penetrate the NPC shield that they've erected. So until there is a newly accepted thing, they're stuck. You and Mark are in the mass persuasion biz. What works best in getting a critical mass of acceptance among the sheepdogs so that the NPCs can follow in a new direction? I doubt that fear and loathing can last for very long. Is it getting the right people to laugh at the right thing? That's a a fascinating question, Chris, and I'll have to think about this in in further detail. But I I think the first thing I can say is that I, I don't know if people are unthinking, but I think that people... Very much like the easier explanation. And I think the default position is to go along with the herd and, and go along with the pack. And I mean, the idea of trusting the experts, trusting the science, trusting the, the you know, the people in the white lab coats. So, uh, another very Milgram-esque thought, by the way. I mean, that famous experiment that he did where, uh, you know, you have someone in a lab coat tell someone to give doses of pain, of increasing intensity to someone In another room, and, you know, for whatever issues you may take with Milgram, the majority of the people in that study, and similarly to when it's been replicated, have gone along with it, because, again, someone in a white coat was telling them to. But I think when you talk about it in a COVID context... I don't even know if it's an NPC like phenomenon. which again, if you've never played a video game, they're the people that like, no matter what, they have no autonomy. They have no agency. They don't think they just have their, their little script in the COVID situation. All of the people that seem to be the most fervent right now in pushing endless vaccine mandates, mask mandates, paranoia, and fear. They're all people who have derived great purpose from having real authority and real power for the first time in their lives. And I think, I mean, doctors are a great example of this. I, I think the one thing that the pandemic has revealed is that not all doctors are intelligent people. And that doesn't mean doctors are not unintelligent, but again, it's the idea that some of them are are very much unhinged. When you have doctors that are aggressively talking about, you know, jabbing infants uh, from the time of birth as many times as it takes, and doctors that are uh, putting on these just insane, I mean, basically they're traveling in hazmat suits uh, before they get on a plane, and doctors that are just putting fear in people, that has no basis in the science, no basis in the facts, and that the numbers don't bear out. And I think it's very difficult for people who don't want to take a stand, and I don't mean this as a slight against them, but some, you know, average... Joe anti-masker, who's not a big anti-mask protester. They're not a fire-breathing libertarian like myself. But, you know, who are they to go up against a doctor? Who are they to go up against the government? Who are they to go up against anyone else that's saying, do all this stuff, even if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't feel real, if it doesn't feel like it makes sense? And I think a lot of other people go along with it. I mean, I had an interesting example. I, I was coming back on an international flight And I may have remarked on this when I was uh, guest hosting this program previously, when you're traveling abroad, I mean, I've come up with a little little joke, which isn't really a joke, which is, uh, what do you call someone with a mask in Europe? A Canadian tourist. Because without a doubt, anyone that you see wearing a mask overseas is is generally speaking a Canadian, I find now. And uh, even through like Heathrow Airport, walking around, and you see a few people wearing masks, And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then I end up seeing all of them on my flight from Heathrow to Montreal. And I think that's because it's just the Canadians that are are going along with this. And uh, Canada is a nation of NPCs, Chris. That's the sad reality of this. And that might even be that. You know what? I think that might even be a contender for the title of this show when the podcast goes up. But I believe that for a lot of people that don't have that rebellious spirit, it's easier to go along with it and internalize it and just buy into it and really abdicate your ability or the urgency of you thinking for yourself. Because to think for yourself and go against the narrative is inherently arrogant. You have to be like, I'm smarter than these doctors, or I'm more correct than these doctors, or I'm more correct than the government or this public health advisor. And and that's difficult for a lot of people to do. And and if you look around, oftentimes, all it takes is a couple of people to take their mask off in public, for example. And before you know it, everyone has. Because everyone's waiting for someone else to take the first step. Now, I I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I hopefully have touched on it a little bit. Eric writes, "Hi Andrew, I support." He doesn't write "Hi," he just writes "Andrew." But I assume there's implicit in that an invisible hello. So hello to you too, Eric. I support you, Hermit Crabbing Mark out of the Friday Q and A. Long live the Lawton Revolution in the Kudestine. What are your thoughts on Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan this week? American power has been in a fairly obvious relative decline since the end of the Cold War. We in the U.S. reduced our military. Well, China and Russia have been working to catch up with ours. Not to mention that. China has about a billion bodies to spare and nuclear weapons. Why is it our political class continue to walk and talk like it's 1991 of all people should have the, uh, when they of all people should have the least illusions about our capabilities in the event World War III begins? Yeah, this is, I, I mean, when World War III does happen, and China invades the United States, Canada will be the staging area. So I have a vested interest in this fight because I'm just, you know, an hour from the Sarnia-Port Huron border between Ontario and Michigan, and the Blue Water Bridge will become part of the Belt and Road Initiative, I presume, before long. So at least the Canadian side of the Blue Water Bridge and Canada's policy of appeasement will no doubt uh, enable that and I would say invite it. But... I think you, your point—I mean, I'll, I'll start on the Pelosi trip, for for starters here, because I think it was great, and I actually give a fair bit of credit to Nancy Pelosi for doing it. And it shouldn't be a controversial thing. This shouldn't be a left-right thing. Democrats and Republicans should be on the same side here, and they aren't. and And it was interesting how Biden has now had to say that, oh, no, 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 this doesn't change anything. It's like, well, you've got the third in line for the presidency— going to a place that is, uh, by China's standards, part of China, just a a province of of the People's Republic of China. And you can't say that this doesn't challenge the U.S. government's one-China policy, which has been a failure, continues to be a failure, and I think is just plain wrong. I do think a lot of what's happening right now from China is inevitable saber-rattling, and I think when nothing happens, it will prove that this was a position that the U.S. could have taken all along. Now, that isn't saying that China's not conquering and colonizing the world. They're, they're doing that, but they're doing that anyway. And I guess the problem is I would say, what has the what do we have to show for the appeasement? What do we have to show for the One China policy? What do we have that has benefited us in this relationship with China by just refusing to acknowledge reality, which is that not just that Taiwan is an independent country, but Taiwan is a country that is deserving of and warranting of Western support. Robust. Western support. There's another question here that ties in with this from Alec. Do you have confidence that the one China policy will ever end? Biden has been unflinching even in light of Pelosi's visit. I I, I will say just on an amusing note here, I I came across this story just before the show began today, which actually made me think this is all fantastic, Uh, more so than I thought before. It's from the Associated Press and the headline itself I think is the great example here of why this is something we should all relish. The headline is China halts climate and military ties over Pelosi-Taiwan visits. So China has decided to stop all contact with the United States on major issues, including climate change cooperation that was behind the 2015 Paris Accord and also the Glasgow stuff at the uh, COP26 summit back in, I think it was November, October, November. Uh, And because this was the U.S.'s whole thing is that they were just like talking endlessly about how China is this bold partner in climate and uh, China is doing all this stuff for climate and China is going to work with the U.S. and they're reducing their emissions and they're doing all of this. I mean, there was a story last week or two weeks ago that China has ordered 300 million more tons of coal. To be mined a year, so it was always nonsense. They never meant it. They were never doing it. But people like John Kerry and Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden had this delusion that China, that Xi Jinping and Joe Biden were like the climate bros that were uh, saving the planet, saving the world, and reducing their emissions. Uh, one week or at a time. And the (laughs) hilarity of this is that now China has like done what it was going to do anyway, which is say, you know, screw you guys. And they're using the Taiwan trip. So I actually think it's fantastic because now the one excuse that the U.S. left has and that the Canadian left has for uh, being nice to China is the climate thing. Now they don't have that because China has walked away. So although I suppose they could go the other direction and now say we need to be like extra nice to them and extra sweet because we want win to them, win them back. We we want to get them back to the climate table. <laughs> That'll be the, uh, the direction this all goes. But I, I think it is amusing to me that this issue has become one where people are so scared. Of stating the obvious. And I, I compare it, and I know the baggage and the history are very different, but I compare it in some ways to Donald Trump moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, uh, the American embassy in Israel. Everyone predicted, all of the chattering classes, the experts, the foreign policy, the, the foreign service, industrial complex, they all talked about how this was going to mean World War III and, oh, it's going to inflame the Muslim world and it's going to make them all hate us and it's going to cause tension and lives are going to be lost and it's unnecessary. And sure, lots of people were angry. You had a couple of protests, but but people moved on from it. And, and they, they were so used to there being no leadership that they allowed that to just dominate. And I think the China thing is the same example. Now, obviously, recognizing Taiwan has a lot greater implications because of the size of China and the goals of China. But I actually don't buy into the fact that the drills they're doing are anything more than posturing. They're going to do what they always do, which is they're going to threaten, they're going to finger wag. But this is something that they know and, and you know, I think are more keenly aware of than a lot of Western leaders. And it's unfortunate that even the ones who are China hawks, I mean, Stephen Harper in Canada was very strong on China in some ways, but they don't do anything about this one China policy. They don't do anything about it. They criticize, they make a couple of uh, comments here and there, but the second China pushes back, they always retreat. And I didn't think Nancy Pelosi was ever going to be the savior on any issue, but I do think that it is entirely possible that she has done something that will reveal that this is a lot more possible than people like Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau and, uh, you know, even uh, certainly in Australia and New Zealand, uh, than they all say it is. And, you know, right now there's a Tory leadership race in Canada. There's a Tory leadership race in the UK. No one's talking about China. And Donald Trump, that was the, I mean, he put China front and center on the agenda. And it's a shame that all of that has basically gone away when this is something that we should have seen more of and we should have seen more leaders do and should have continued continued exposure and attention on. And it's quite shameful that that hasn't been the case. Uh, Walt writes, I think the Chai Coms are going to invade Taiwan in October, but perhaps only... Uh, Kamoi and Matsu, there is a confluence of events. The weather is good in October. The CCP 20th Congress is in November, and she wants to be named chairman for life. China is a complex country with other political power centers outside of Peking. Uh, see, now I'm going to get sanctioned for saying uh, Peking, such as Shanghai that may not want to go along. I've thought that declaring oneself leader for life is a sign of weakness. Lastly, the CCP has bought Biden and the Congress, and they can't really count on either being around after November. October is their window of opportunity. Will our vaunted Canadian ally support Taiwan by opening a second front against the Chai comms by attempting to liberate Vancouver, British Columbia? Well, I mean, I fear that uh, China already owns like half the real estate in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's actually quite, I mean, that's the only place in Canada where you really, really, really can't afford to buy a house because they're all owned by these Chinese oligarchs up and down the Pacific coast. But I I think your insight, Walt, is incredibly accurate. I mean, I don't consider myself a China expert by any stretch. I know a fair bit about China and Taiwan. and, And certainly I've been following extensively the Belt and Road Initiative over the last several years. But I think what you're describing is an existing plan. It's an existing play that has nothing to do with what Nancy Pelosi does and nothing to do with what Joe Biden does. And I I think at the very least, the, the U.S. needs to recognize this is happening and say this is why we need to support Taiwan. I mean, we saw how quickly Hong Kong fell. And uh, Hong Kong is done. It's never coming back. And and the fact that you still have Western jurists like I think Lord Sumption in the UK and Beverly McLaughlin in Canada, Western jurists that sit on the Hong Kong court, the Court of Appeal there, that that just go along with it, that enforce this national security law effectively, uh, shows that the West is terrified of taking a stand, and China knows it. So when China has been given carte blanche to do whatever it wants, there's really no incentive to do the opposite. But they aren't waiting on it. I mean, the idea of, oh, well, the climate partner, you know, the, when the climate partner invades Taiwan, and uh, the only way John Kerry will care about uh, the Chinese invasion of Taiwan is if they set up a coal plant. And even then, I, I highly doubt it will even trip his radar because, after all, they are our friends in climate. But, I mean, us, <laughs> to your question, Walt, will the Canadian ally support Taiwan? Uh, no. Absolutely not. I mean, Canada has rolled out the carpet. If you want, I mean, back when I used to guest host uh, Mark's uh, audio podcast, not the live Q&A, but the, the Mark Stein audio show, I used to always love the Chinese penetration segment that I would do, inspired by Eric Swalwell and Fang Fang. And it was odd because I would always set out to find like a global example of Chinese penetration. And that segment ended up becoming invariably a Canadian content segment because there, the Chinese penetration in Canada was everywhere. You see it in universities, you see it in universities, you see it among elected officials there's a Chinese there's a Chinese Canadian senator who's very much a parroting Beijing language every time he speaks there's a, a Chinese spy who sits in the Ontario legislature reportedly there is another uh, Chinese influenced uh, politician in Canada that I know of that has been written about in the Globe and Mail there are a number of politicians political leaders institutions organizations that are all under the thumb of the Chinese Politburo and in Canada no no one seems to care. And there was a, a, a dissident of Chinese origin who criticized China extensively as a member of parliament. And it was a Chinese influence campaign that ultimately resulted in him getting turfed from his job in the fall election in Canada. So, If you're expecting Canada to take a stand for Taiwan, I think you're going to be waiting a while. I will say one interesting aside to that is that there's a leadership candidate right now by the name of Scott Aitchison. He's running for the leadership of the Conservatives in Canada, he's probably going to be in last place or second last place. So let's not hold out hope that uh, Canadians are itching for Aitchison. But Scott Aitchison has uh, come out and said he believes that Canada should recognize Taiwan as a country. And this has been, I think, his strongest policy. And, And even though he's not going to be the leader of the Conservatives anytime soon, I would absolutely love for the Conservatives to take that stand. Not just because it's a saleable thing to do, but because it is the morally right thing to do. And moral righteousness seems to be in short supply in the uh, latest uh, round of of political leadership. Uh, Here's a question from our good friend and former Mark Stein Show guest, Tal Bachman. Tal says, hello, Andrew, hope you're well. It's now increasingly clear that virtually every government assurance and mandate regarding COVID-19 and the injections the last two and a half years was false and even dangerously, even lethally false. These falsehoods included claims about the safety and efficacy of the injections, the prophylactic powers of the two-cent paper Chinese masks, the net value of lockdowns and the two-cent paper masks, etc. So one of my questions is, that you know of, is there any realistic legal recourse in either Canada, the UK, the United States, or anywhere For citizens to receive compensation from damages caused by government bureaucracies, which were at best utterly derelict in their public health duties, and at worst, as we're now discovering knowingly mendacious and even quietly receiving compensation from the pharmaceutical companies to speak and act in ways that benefited those companies at citizens' expense. Well, first off, I should say, first off, unrelated to all of that, huge congratulations to Tal because he just got married to his uh, lovely wife now, Coco, who many of you have also seen on the Mark Stein show in the past, the Christmas show of 2019, notably. And uh, Tal and uh, Coco just got married in Japan. So congratulations to you both. Uh, Short answer, no, I don't think there is any legitimate recourse. I mean, we've seen, if you've been watching the Mark Stein show, the interviews that Mark has done, which are tremendous with uh, people who have been injured by the vaccine or have been widowed by the vaccine or left without parents or children by the vaccine. And the government is giving them, you know, like six-figure sums, like £100,000 or something, which is an insult. It's not enough. And it's also not accompanied by an apology. Not that an apology would undo the harm's cause, but it's not even accompanied by any recognition of wrongdoing. It, it's basically just the case that it's all collateral damage. And on lockdowns in particular, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a reckoning. I mean, we have some academics that are putting out their own reports talking about, oh, the increase in suicides and the increase in all of these other things. But you cannot convince these people that are absolutely hellbent on pushing this notion that lockdowns saved lives when there's no evidence to support the idea that lockdowns saved lives. Even, I mean, for all its faults, the World Health Organization has even said that it doesn't support lockdowns now. A little bit too little too late, mind you. But everyone's gone along with it. And now the whole point is they are, as they say in poker, pot committed. Because they've staked, I mean, governments have staked their entire reputations, their legitimacy on this idea that the lockdowns, the border closures, the travel restrictions, the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, the vaccine passports, that all of this mattered and all of this was positive and had no harm or at least where the harms were outweighed by the benefits. And they are not going to allow there to be any acknowledgement that they were wrong because the entire house of cards would crumble. No one would ever trust anything they say again. They're still talking about fall comebacks of these restrictions. Certainly in Canada, whenever they've lifted anything, a vaccine mandate for air travel or a mask mandate, they've all said, oh, no, no, but hang on in the winter, it's coming back when there's a a high uptick in cases. Because again, they've created this, they've created these parameters. They've created their rules and the rules only apply to us. They don't apply to them. In Canada, you have to wear your mask on a commercial flight. Justin Trudeau right now is on vacation in Costa Rica and he gets off the military plane that brings him down and his whole family is unmasked. Now, it's possible, it's possible that they took their masks off in unison at the exact second they came into view of the cameras right when they got out of the plane and onto the staircase to get down to the tarmac. It's possible, but but under Canadian law, they have to wear that when they are on the plane but not Trudeau, not his family. But everyone else has to go along with it. And they can't admit they were wrong because they need to keep it. That, I mean, that's the way you control the population. And I don't mean this in like, a, we're all being injected with micro, I mean, we're being injected, but not with microchips. I, I don't mean it in, in that conspiratorial way. But in general, government needs to keep itself as the daddy. Government has to be the daddy and the mommy and the nanny So that all of us just look to them for everything because the second Canadians realize this is all a big sham, the second Americans realize, and most of them already did depending on state, second Brits and Aussies and New Zealanders realize it, the whole thing comes crashing down. And that was why the trucker's convoy in in Canada was so dangerous. And again, I will just put in a a shameless plug. I have a book out about the convoy, the Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world, which I would encourage you to check out. And there's a link in the description for this program. But I think that there's not going to be any accountability to get back to your question, Tal. And I I think that's why, because uh, to do so would, would basically undercut the government's ability to put these restrictions in in the future which is a very important part of what the government wants to continue to do. Uh, Ben, Ben writes, I just saw Biden is still testing positive for COVID for the seventh straight day with a rebound infection after being treated with Paxlovid. Does any of this make sense? Why are they still pushing these vaccines and medicines that clearly don't work? Yeah, see, I always understood the long COVID to be the case of you get symptoms for a long time, not to just keep testing it. So either the crappy Chinese antigen tests are not working or Joe Biden's not working or he just keeps being reinfected every time. But I think the whole point is, is that testing doesn't really matter now. And I I think a lot of people understand this and have understood it for a while, which is why the incessant focus on cases has always been so dangerous. I mean, right now in a lot of countries, you have uh, people that have just completely moved on from it. And well, it used to be that you could get like a test on every street corner. Now, I just walked into a pharmacy earlier and they had a big sign saying, yeah, rapid antigen tests aren't available here. Scan this QR code and, and find out where you can get them. Because uh, basically, there's no point in stocking these things anymore that most people have moved on from. So uh, I don't know which. I, I was almost stranded overseas once back when uh, Canada had the test to get back in because I had a false positive. And I was in Austria, and fortunately, you could get like a test on every corner there. So I was able to just go and get another test and technically broke my, my Austrian quarantine to do it. And then that test was negative. But I, I think people have moved on from this, and, and governments are not fans of that. And uh, Joe Biden testing positive, I feel like it's just, uh, you know, the government reminding us that, oh, yes, this is still a real thing. Well, I mean, I think the biggest problem is that he still tested positive for being president. And that is, I think, the the bigger issue to Americans right now than him testing positive for COVID. Uh, This is one from Jamie, who writes, It looks like Pierre Polyev is set to win the Conservative leadership race in Canada. He's saying all the right things, but so did the last two leaders. Will he be a big disappointment once he is the leader? So to give the, like, 30-second primer on Canadian politics here, Pierre Polyev is seeking the leadership of the Canadian Conservative Party. The last leader, Aaron O'Toole, was defenestrated by his caucus during the trucker convoy protest in Ottawa, when, you know, you basically had the entire conservative movement and a lot of other people in Canada that were supporting the truckers, and Aaron O'Toole was uh, refused to say one way or another what he thought. So not exactly the strongest of leaders, and they got rid of him, and and now there's a leadership race. And Pierre Polyev is is very much the the populist. I mean, I don't even like the words because they mean things to different people, but he's the one that's talking about defunding the state broadcaster. He's the one talking about freedom. He's the one talking about ending vaccine mandates. Here's the one talking about the failure of the Trudeau government on the COVID front. And there are other lesser, uh, less prominent candidates that are doing similar things. But uh, Pierre Polyev, it looks like, is headed for a coronation. And... I I agree with the sentiment that Jamie's expressing, which is that we've seen in Canada and I think in general in in primaries or leadership races, uh, politicians that say the right thing when they're campaigning for their bases votes, but then they forget everything they've said when they're running for the general election. But, you know, the clips are still out there, the sound bites are still out there, so they still have to own those things, but they lose support from both sides of it. And this, I, I think, is going to be inevitable in some way. I mean, I've, I've tried when I've interviewed Pierre Polyev, I've tried to ask very direct, very specific questions about what he's going to do, because I know that later on, if he does flip, it's a bit of an insurance policy that I have in, in very clear, unequivocal language that I can say, well, what's changed? Why have you, why have you reversed on this? But I also go back in in some ways to what I was talking about earlier with the Kansas abortion referendum and that you you can never and should never put all your hope in a politician or a Supreme Court appointee or anyone else because none of it matters if you are in a culture that is drifting left. None of it matters if anything that a conservative does is going to be undone by the next government. I mean, I look at firearms in Canada. Just this morning, the Liberal government under Justin Trudeau. Well, Trudeau's on vacation. They're still banning guns. They, they passed an import ban on handguns. And I shouldn't even say passed. They signed it in through regulations. So basically through the Canadian equivalent of an executive order, if, if we're being frank here. So that Canada, Canadian gun businesses and gun owners cannot import handguns. And this is particularly insidious because a couple of months back, they announced that they were going to legislate a handgun ban. And of course, there was an immediate run on handguns, as everyone in their uncle that had a license said, "Okay, I got to get a handgun now before they're banned. And the government didn't like that, that Parliament takes time, that going through legislative processes takes time. So by banning the imports, they're effectively overnight ending the handgun market because, I mean, the number of guns that are manufactured in Canada that are pistols is relatively small. There are a couple, but not a lot. So what the government's done is they've circumvented the democratic process. So, I mean, you could have a conservative government that comes in that rolls back some firearms restrictions, rolls back this and rolls back that. But none of that's going to matter if the second that a liberal's in, all of this stuff comes flooding back. And I think this is the big challenge. So you should not put all your hopes into any politician. Saber Mike Carroll writes, Andrew, have a question regarding the ArriveCAN app. <laughs> now I'm answering Canadian immigration questions for you, so I'll have to like put up a shingle as a Canadian immigration barrister. How exactly does this work for crossing a land border? And how does it work for someone like myself who, the second I cross the peace bridge, no longer has cell phone service? I want to see my beloved Ticats Cats and Forge FC but it feels like all the hoops I have to jump through just make it not worth the aggravation. Not to mention, I believe, the crazy mask mandates are still in place. Just got your book today and look forward to checking it out. Well, thank you very much for that, Saber Mike. Now, I don't know from this question if Saber Mike is a an American or a Canadian. And I apologize for not gleaning that from it. If, if you're a Canadian, it's a complete annoyance because you have to find a place where you have reception or Wi-Fi because some people again don't want to pay the ridiculous roaming charges when they're in the U.S. I think it's like fifteen dollars a day or something insane like that. Uh, so you got to find Wi-Fi. You've got to put in all your information into this little app. You've got to upload your passport to it. You've got to uh, tell them when you were vaccinated, what doses you got. It was it's crazy. And then when you get back, uh, the border officer, when they see your passport or your Nexus card, already has your vaccination information because they just pull it from the app. So it basically allows. It requires you to like give all of this information about yourself electronically before you even cross a border. And uh, it's, it's terrible. I mean, you have people that are being fined thousands and thousands of dollars for showing up at a border when they haven't done this. People whose cell phones glitched out. If you just go over for a day, and you do some shopping and your phone dies, you cannot come back into your country without being fined because you haven't filled out this stupid little app thing. And the government has been unrelenting. And and actually, this is one of these examples of mission creep in a so-called COVID policy, because this was supposed to be about the pandemic. It was supposed to be about just ensuring that all the information was in one place about testing and vaccination. But now the government in Canada is transitioning this app To something that has nothing to do with COVID. They're making it a standard part of immigration where if you're a Canadian re-entering your own country, you're an American visiting Canada for a day, you're traveling from abroad, doesn't matter. You have to now give all of your information ahead of your arrival or get a very steep fine. And if you're not Canadian, just be turned away entirely. And uh, this is absolutely absolutely egregious and Canadians are, to go back to Chris Hall's point about the NPC, going along with it because they say, oh, well, you know, they're asking us to and what's the big deal? Well, why is it a big problem? You know, it's it's just a little app. I have lots of apps on my phone. What's the problem? The problem is that it is a requirement that we accept a new normal. And that's not something that I am willing to do. Uh, geezer writes: I mentioned this earlier. Did you see Trudeau maskless and on a private plane in Costa Rica? When will the charade ever end? Yeah, Mark has always been good about pointing this out. You know, he'll be mask—he'll be wearing a mask with Boris Johnson, and then he'll be unmasked, like nose to nose with Queen Elizabeth II, the ninety-something-year-old uh, in the United Kingdom, and then he'll uh, be unmasked at a pub having a good time. But then he's like masked when he's outdoors doing a photo alone. Uh, so it's like he's not. Even even committed to the bit like my view is if you're going to do it at least commit to it at least be the mass guy uh, there was a great photo at one of the I think it was the G7 or the G20 finance ministers meeting where they were in London and Everyone in the picture, all 19 uh, G20 ministers except one, were wearing no mask at all. And then Canada's finance minister, outside with like six feet on either side of her, uh, Christopher Freeland, she was wearing a mask. And it it reaffirms my theory of how do you spot, of what do you call someone outside of North America wearing a mask, a Canadian traveler. Uh, (laughs) Alisa writes, what do Canadians think of Trudeau flying to Costa Rica on their dime? And what do they think of his not wearing a mask when he tells others to? So you guys love the Trudeau quest. That's good to know, because I I worry that I overdo it on Canadian content. But it seems like you like the Trudeau content. I I mean, I I took the view on this, and I'm a little bit unpopular among some people on the right in Canada, because I take the view that if Justin Trudeau were to permanently move to Costa Rica, I would be willing to pay that bill. I would be willing to contribute to buying him like a year-round home in Costa Rica, because I feel the country is better served when he is not in it. Uh, Although I have to, I mean... I said that yesterday, and I have to make an amendment to it today because uh, clearly the ban on handguns came while he was in Costa Rica. So uh, it w- so generally speaking, I think he should take a real vacation. I don't support Justin Trudeau doing the remote work thing. I support him like completely disengaging when he's overseas, and this wouldn't be the uh, thing we have to deal with here. Um Uh, Let's, uh, this one, uh, Joan asks about, oh yes, uh, when China's now saying they'll stop discussing climate change and anti-drug efforts with the U.S. I I touched on that one earlier, but she asks, will the climate zealots double down on their efforts for the U.S. to save the planet, even though China... Is one of the biggest polluters. Yeah, I I had a glimmer of optimism that we would all just end the charade that China is our partner in climate, but I do fear that it's going to go towards the doubling down of, oh, no, 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 we need to work extra hard to keep them at the table. Uh, Katie writes, "Uh, What do you think of Alex Jones' lawyer quote unquote accidentally turning over all his cell records? Mark has mentioned you have practiced law in the United States on occasion. Do you think this is a case of malpractice? Yes, I actually have the distinct honor of being an unlicensed, uh, illegal foreigner masquerading as a barrister in an American arbitration, which uh, you probably can imagine which one it was if you know the history of Mark Stein in the last few years. And interestingly enough, I, I have very limited legal knowledge in the U.S. because, as I mentioned, I, I've only worked one case. Although I did win that. I, we, we did, I did not win that case. We we won the case, my, my uh, sincere appreciation for my fellow unlicensed counsel on that case. But, you know, I think it's interesting that how many bad lawyers there are. I mean I talked earlier about bad doctors that you know you think like when you're raised growing up you think you know the doctors the lawyers the police officers these are all like really impressive people and then as you as you age you realize that a lot of them are very unimpressive people but they have impressive credentials. And the Alex Jones lawyer thing is absolutely insane. So what happened here is Alex Jones' lawyer sent a complete digital copy of Alex Jones' cell phone records to the plaintiff's counsel. These are the the families of Sandy Hook victims, and didn't mark it as privilege, so all of it is fair game. And you know, there are things in this phone that contradict things Alex Jones has said under oath. So uh, you know, whether the lawyer is just an absolute moron or whether the lawyer was secretly sabotaging Alex Jones, I have I have no idea, but I, I think the one, I mean, there's that old line about don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence, but sometimes you can have maliciously incompetent people. And I think that may be the case here, but I can tell you, I did no such thing when I was representing, uh, when I was helping represent Mark as an unlicensed barrister in the United States. So, uh, Alex, if you need a new lawyer, I am available I'm a not lawyer, but I'm an on lawyer, but I I can do my best for you there. Uh, We have a question here from, uh, hello, this is another question from Elisa. You say you are a libertarian. Explain what you mean or define libertarian for us. The libertarian party platform in the USA is sheer lunacy. Are you saying libertarian or libertarian? Now, reading that makes more sense because one has a small L and one has a large L, capital L or lowercase l. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And I remember in Mark's interview with Lionel Shriver many years back, she had said very hesitantly that she's a libertarian, but said, you know, there's an American context that uh, tends to muddy that a bit. I say libertarian in a small L sense. I I will say though, there's a great clip if you ever get around to seeing it of one of the libertarian, I think it was a libertarian presidential nominee primary debate. And all of the candidates trying to be the presidential nominee for the libertarians are debating And the question is about, should there be a driver's license to drive? And (laughs) it's actually quite hilarious because you get like one guy that says like, you know, next thing you know, you'll need a license to make toast. And then, you know, you get someone else that says, absolutely not. And then you get uh, Gary Johnson, who ended up winning who says, well, you know, I think there are certain things where maybe you want someone to demonstrate some proficiency. And then he just gets booed because, like, supporting the existence of a driver's license at the Libertarian uh, Party primary is uh, absolute lunacy. But I, <laughs> so it was kind of fun. I, I When I say Libertarian, I mean that I support liberty right up until the point that it infringes on that of another. And I will say this puts me against a lot of uh, issues in theory that that I believe in just because I don't think it's the state's role. Now, I, I consider myself pro-life and I, the way I rationalize being a pro-life libertarian is very simple. Uh, to me, libertarianism is about supporting freedom up until the point it infringes on another's freedom. So in the context of abortion, the question is, is an unborn child another person, another being. And, and I say, yes. So that's a, a question of science rather than a question of, of moral limitations. It also means though, when the topic of, of big tech comes up, I, I do not support regulating big tech. I don't support a lot of the things that, you know, Ted Cruz and some Republicans propose for dealing with Twitter and dealing with YouTube and dealing with Facebook and dealing with all of these companies, because I believe Truly, and I, I know that when uh, Parler was taken offline and Trump was banned from Twitter, it really was as I think it was. I, I, who was it? I, what it might have been uh, Will Will Chamberlain of Town Hall, but I may be getting it wrong. Who said that this was the day the libertarians lost the argument on big tech? And I, admittedly, I, I I felt he was onto something there. That that all of these people that said you know build your own alternative like me, and which Parler did, had a lot of egg on their face. But I I also think that the big challenge here is that you have way too much power in the hands of a small number of people. And, And where I do see there as being some avenue for regulation is when it's government regulation and government monopolies that have allowed these oligopolies to form. And that's the the big problem with you know with telecommunications companies, by and large, with uh, with the social media companies. So that's where I I don't think that they should be protected in any special way. But that's my my definition of liberty, and I, I realize that you know a lot of uh, people don't like that. Libertarian does come with a fair bit of baggage, especially in the United States. But it also, for me, is the most defensible position. It's the most defensible position because it, it really relies on the individual without conservatisms, I think often ideal of trying to focus on a specific outcome. And I think that the challenge in the modern political context, the challenge in the modern political debate, is that conservatives are outnumbered. And I think if you try to advance things that are subjective in nature, you're always going to be on the losing end. So my default position is on the individual. My default position is on Liberty. And I I feel that's the most sustainable position. I feel that's the only way that people on the right are ever going to get what they want is if uh, it's left to the individual and we don't try to prescribe uh, social or communal outcomes. And uh, that's why I'm a big believer in parents' rights. That's why I'm a big believer in uh, the right to individual families, to practice their religion, to faith communities. And it's why I think on COVID restrictions, I- I'm all for masks and vaccine mandates if a private business wants to mandate them. But I'm not for mandating these things statewide, province-wide, or nationwide. We got a uh, bit of a... This is a longer one here. I- I'm going to try to skim it here. It's from... E- it's Dear Mark, see, the, the second line... Of this post here uh, says that I'm going to be guest hosting. I am not Mark, but nevertheless, Eagle Patriot Minuteman 1776 says, Let me tell you the story of how we got from Texas to Kiev. On February 24th, we left Kiev and. Uh, stayed at our summer house until mid-March from there we drove to Holland via Lvov and Linz all in all it was a week-long journey that was the easy part over the next several months were bureaucratic and transportation held courtesy of the U.S. State Department the, uh, oh, where else do we have here? And the German rail system, uh, for my wife to get a green card, we had to go to Frankfurt two separate times. You can't just submit an application. In the end, they couldn't be bothered to send my wife's passport by mail. We had to go to Frankfurt a third time to pick it up, and uh, on and on. I, sorry, I, we're coming up to the end of our time here, so I'm, I'm trying to just skim here. In the end, some bloody German Lufthansa desk clerk tried to refuse us entry to the terminal because we are the dirty, unwashed, unvaccinated. Getting from Laren to Frankfurt was more difficult than getting out of Kiev on Invasion Day, or driving across Europe. Why? Because nothing works anymore. The experts screwed it up with their lockdowns. I look forward to the day Russia incinerates Washington, London stand and Brussels. Well, I am going to say on that one that I I take a, a non-violent view of this. This is the uh, to go back to Elise's question, I'm invoking the non-aggression principle here, but I, I you're right that nothing works. And it was interesting because as much as Canada, which I was talking about earlier, has stuck to the COVID policies more forcefully than anyone else, the only way to get around them right now is by being Ukrainian. If you're a Ukrainian refugee, it really doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not. You can get on a plane. You can come to Canada. You don't have to quarantine. And I, I would say, like, let's give the whole of Canada the, the Ukraine treatment and let's just uh, give them weapons and let the unvaccinated do what they want. But in Canada, you are not able to do what you want if you're unvaccinated and the government's taking your guns. So I think, yeah, the, I think that, that's actually the platform that the conservatives uh, in the leadership race should run on. Let's just give Canadians the Ukraine treatment by the Canadian government. And I, it's not surprising what you're saying. It's absolutely not surprising, and it's, it's shameful that we have just bureaucratized everything to the point of just breaking down systems. And, and everyone says, oh, it's the, the labor shortage, we don't have staff, we don't have people to do this. Well, then, then stop adding all of these mundane bureaucratic tasks that make things that could be a heck of a lot simpler impossible to do. And that's what's happening. So I'm glad you got to Texas. I'm glad you got to safety. I'm saddened that it took you so long and you had to go to like, you know, every hoop of bureaucratic hell just to get to that point. Absolutely crazy. Uh, We have a message from Alex J. I just, I don't know if it's Alex Jones. Uh, Maybe he's like messaging me asking for uh, my contact information to be his lawyer. Nope. Doesn't look to be that. I pre-ordered your fantastic book on Amazon and finally received it just last week. Did the publisher not print enough books? Did they not anticipate how popular your book would be? Or is there something more nefarious going on at Amazon? I wouldn't put it past that Bezos bozo. Well, if I say anything bad about Amazon, they might like just hold up the next load of uh, books going out to people. So uh, thank you very much for ordering it, by the way. This is, if I can just gloat because it's my first book, so I'm enjoying it, a number one bestseller in Canada. It's number one on the Globe and Mail list. It's number one on the Toronto Star list. I think when I guest hosted the Q&A a a couple of weeks back, it had been on for two weeks. Now it has been number one for four weeks and is still selling. It was the, the top book on Amazon last week as well. And all of that, I say, is fascinating because the largest book selling chain in Canada, Indigo, is not carrying it. So uh, if you want to get it from Indigo, the, the gatekeepers are telling you you can't. I don't, I mean, Amazon has been, as a result, the place that I've been sending everyone to. And it's, I'm saddened to know that even Amazon is not getting them out quickly enough. My hope is that it was just that it was selling so many uh, bajillion copies that they didn't print enough. And I'm going to just choose that as the most charitable interpretation. But I, if I checked right now, not that I am like obsessively refreshing the page or anything, it looks like it is in stock on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. So Americans are able to uh, grab it that way. But <laughs> thank you very much, Alex. And I do hope you enjoy the book. Uh, Gary writes... Uh, I am pretty... Oh, no, I don't have time to get into that one there, but it is a a question about the tax code sneaking in through Congress. Uh, David writes, uh, Greetings from an ex-Londoner, Ontario, that is. Could you give us a prediction on who you think will finally end up as leader of the Conservative Party? Secondly, as good small-c Conservatives, what laws do you think they'll roll back if and when the Conservatives take control of the federal parliament? I touched on that a little bit earlier. I think Pierre Polyev is going to win. I think he's saying all the right things now. I hope that he keeps that up and and sticks to his guns. I, I think that the Canadian political climate has changed a little bit in the last little while in a way that uh, will, will hopefully prevent against the cowardice that we've seen, the cowardice that we've seen in, in previous conservative leaders. Uh, but I mean, as for the other part of your question about what laws will they roll back? I mean, I, I would hope all of them. I mean, Justin Trudeau, for all of his faults, has been tremendously effective at getting things that are on his agenda done. He has uh, put in a big carbon tax. He's rolled back gun rights. He He's made all of these changes. He's cracking down on internet free speech. We didn't get to it today, but the liberals are bringing back the section that people like Mark Stein and Ezra Levant and Ka- the late Kathy Schadel worked painstakingly to defeat. Section 13, of the Canadian Human Rights Act. It's been gone for uh, just under a decade and it's already coming back because the Liberals get things done. And I would hope that the Conservatives always, 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 always uh, roll this back. But, but don't just roll back to what it was four years ago. Actually go back to the basics and start uh, rethinking and, and recreating some of these very key things. Uh, so that is that. And uh, a couple other questions on the Conservative leadership race. Um, Eric writes, do you believe a private business is truly private if it simply institutes through its human rights, human resources department, what the government legally cannot? Isn't there a point where the public private distinction breaks down? Now, I don't know if this was just a well-timed question or if this is uh, in response to the uh, libertarianism explanation I gave uh, Elisa earlier. Uh, I, I mean, short answer is yes, I, I believe it is truly private. And, and when I explain why. When I explain why I believe that, I'll give you a great example of this. If we leave it up to government, the Christian baker is always going to be forced to bake the gay wedding cake. So for me, the only way to prevent the Christian baker from being compelled to bake the gay wedding cake is to give the Muslim baker the right to prevent uh, or to to not bake the Jewish cake and to give the Jewish baker the right to not uh, bake the Muslim cake or whatever the case is, whatever the cake is. Uh, sorry, couldn't resist. So that's why I default to individual choice. If it's up to government, it's going to be mask mandates and vaccine passports and vaccine mandates all over the place. The only way we get rid of those is to let the businesses that want to impose them impose them and let the ones that don't want to avoid it. And, and I realize there's an a inherently utopian aspect to this, and I, I'm fully aware of that. But this is why I think conservatives need to focus a lot more on winning over individuals rather than just trying to win over these institutions that, as John O'Sullivan pegged a long time ago, are always going to be in a leftward drift. The only way you fix that is by empowering individuals to make these choices for themselves and then giving them the legal basis to make the right choice to allow it for others and let everyone make the wrong choices. I mean, I'd be completely happy if all of the the covid paranoid can have their own restaurants or their own stores to go to where they feel safe, they feel happy, and the rest of us that are okay speaking moistly on one another can go to the stores that we want to go to. Not that I like living in parallel societies, but that's the only way that we don't default to what will be the government position, which is less freedom and less rights. So I hope I answered your question, Eric. Thank you to all of you for tuning into this guest host level, substitute guest host level edition of the program. As I said at the beginning, Mark will be on Serenade Radio on Sunday and then back on the Mark Stein Show on GB News on Monday evening. And you won't want to miss what's coming up there. I don't even know what's coming up there. I just know it'll always be good. So uh, in true Canadian content fashion, we will give you a Canadian sunset farewell. Thank you and God bless. (音楽) La 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 Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media, all rights reserved.